your imagination is narrow and restricted and you exclude these possibilities from the outside, oh no, it couldn't be that, oh no, they'd never do that, oh no, I don't believe that that, then of course, they'll never be there in front of you as real things that you're going to test through evidence and reason. And so you'll just never go there. So it seemed to me that even though we don't prove things true or false through the imagination, nonetheless, the imagination is crucial. If you don't, if you can't imagine something as possible, then you'll never, you'll never go there. You'll never see it, even if it's right in front of your face. Dr. Graham McQueen is a retired professor of religious studies at McMaster University in Canada. We discussed his research into the 2001 anthrax attacks, as well as the spectacle of 9-11 that was the Pentagon's B-movie. It's time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. The attacks on buildings like this by hijackers with planes had been imagined and had been scripted and had been enacted in simulations and exercises over a period of years, as you just said. And, and I just quote, I don't know, 16 or so of those scenarios, but there were more than that. I had to cut it down because I didn't want to, you know, go on and on. Um, but yeah, there were a whole bunch of scenarios, you know, a hijacked plane hits uh, the UN building or hits the Pentagon or hits, in at least one case, the World Trade Center. They'd thought about all this. So there's nothing wrong with the Pentagon's imagination. And so then, of course, we have to face the fact that, let's suppose bin Laden had a good imagination, he pictured this, uh, Pentagon had a good, good imagination, gee, who could have actually enacted it more easily? Well, obviously the Pentagon had the resources that bin Laden didn't have, um, so they become suspects right away. I've decided to do a series on 9-11. While most will dismiss this as a conspiracy theory, as the CIA and its obedient media have instructed us, some, nonetheless, will open their minds and face the evidence. Opening minds is what we do on Progressive Spirit. Already in this series, I've spoken with psychotherapist Francis Schuer, who's writing a series of articles entitled, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? We talked about the psychological blocks that keep us from information that shakes our worldview. I've also spoken with David Ray Griffin, sometimes called the grandfather of the 9-11 truth movement, about his latest book, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Published in August 2017, this is Professor Griffin's 12th and likely his last book on 9-11. He details the lies that we all know were told by the Bush administration in leading us to the global war on terror and all that has resulted, including the shredding of the Constitution, killer drones, torture, and the toppling of governments. Griffin shows that this destruction is based on lies and miracles and asserts that until we face the truth of 9-11, will be powerless to address the destruction the U.S. continues to unleash on the world. Dr. Niels Herrett was also in my 9-11 series to discuss the chemistry and physics of the collapse of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers. He's retired associate professor of chemistry at the University of Copenhagen and first author of Active Thermitic Material Observed in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe, published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal in 2009. We discussed the thermite, thermate, and nanothermite discovered in the dust of the World Trade Center towers, his evaluation of the reports released by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and the work of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. 
An interview forthcoming is with Dr. Leroy Hulsey, chair of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Civil and Environmental Engineering Department, who in early September 2017 released a draft report of the science behind the collapse of World Trade Center 7. In this episode, I speak with Graham McQueen, author of The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. In this book, he provides evidence that the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks, both of which scared the American people into war, were carried out by the same people, people highly placed in the U.S. government. We'll discuss that book as well as two articles he published this year, 9-11, the Pentagon's B-movie, and the inside job hypothesis of the 9-11 attack, JFK, 9-11, and the American left. Dr. Graham McQueen is the former director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. He was an organizer of the Toronto hearings on 9-11, is a member of the Consensus 9-11 panel, and is a former co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He's with me via Skype from Dundas, Ontario. Welcome, Dr. McQueen, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you for having me on, John. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your work uh, first at McMaster? How long uh, were you a professor there, and when did you retire, and what work did you do? Right. I guess I taught about 30 years, not quite 30, almost 30 years. And then I took early retirement 13 or 14 years ago. I was 54 anyway when I retired. Um, tired of banging my head against the wall in the university, so I decided to do research and anti-war activity outside the university. Um, yeah, so about 30 years, I taught in the Department of Religious Studies. PhD was mainly in Buddhism. So I taught that. I taught world religions more generally to many, many thousands of, uh, of young people. And I taught peace studies uh, once I had become director of that program. So I was teaching both those things when the 9-11 attacks happened. And I had lots of opportunities to talk to my class about the nature of that and the likely outcomes and so on. So when uh, 9-11 hit, uh, were you um, immediately suspicious of the official story or did it take some time or how did you uh, work that? It's hard not to laugh when I think about that uh -huh. because, yeah, no, I mean, I, I should have seen it very quickly. I mean, I had been teaching about peace and war for quite a few years by then, and I had give, given, you know, public presentations on the Gulf of Tonkin incident and stuff like that. Not only that, but we had, when I say we, I mean the Center for Peace Studies that I was involved in, had a project in Afghanistan. And I had been in Af well, no, that's not true. I'd been in Peshawar in Pakistan across the border from Afghanistan in February 2001. And lots of interesting things <laughs> were told to me at that time, including, you know, the U.S. will soon be invading us <laughs> and you know, things like that. So when the 9-11 attacks happened, there were all kinds of reasons why I should have seen through it immediately. But... Uh, I, I consider myself half asleep at the time. It took me a while to get onto it. Um, and the funny thing is, I remember giving, I remember being on you know, part of a teach-in at my university just a few days after 9/11. People were still, you know, traumatized and scared and upset. And a coalition of students and faculty members decided to have a teach-in, and, and there were a few, a small number, maybe four or five faculty members who gave little talks, and then we broke up into small groups and all that. And the thing is, uh, I remember the gist of my talk. What I said at one point was, you know, I can picture uh, assigning, you know, giving an assignment in the peace studies class to my students and saying, um, you know, come up with a scenario for me that uh, that could conceivably a war, be a war trigger. In other words, that could trigger war among nations. You know, like, like the Archduke Ferdinand assassination in 1914, that kind of thing. Come up with a trigger incident in for modern times and, you know, make it believable and, and write it up for me and that'll be your assignment. I said, I can imagine doing that and I can imagine getting the 9-11 thing which happened just a few days before that. I can imagine somebody writing that up. And here's what my response would be. On the one hand, 
this is really well done. I mean, this is clearly done with a sense of who the Taliban is and who Al-Qaeda is and who the United States is. And, and you've got it all in place and it's definitely going to lead to war. There's no question about that, even though nobody had invaded anybody at that time. I said, it's clear it's going to, it's going to lead to war. So it's brilliant in the one, on the one hand. On the other hand, I can't give you an A for this because it looks like a B movie. I mean, I mean really. <laughs> Really, am I supposed to believe, you know, that they would hijack all these planes and, and the two of the tallest buildings, you know, you know, characteristic of the New York skyline would suddenly crumble and come down? I said, give me a break. And so that's how I led off. And then I went on from there. Uh, so there was a part of my brain, you could say, which saw the absurdity of this right away. And I didn't get around to actually writing that up until just the other day. You mentioned at the beginning I had written an article called 9-11, the, the Pentagon's B-movie. Yeah, here it is, 2017. I finally wrote that up. Um, but the fact is that even though part of my brain was saying this is absurd, another part was saying, well, you know, nobody seems to be questioning it. Uh, everybody seems to agree this is what happened. Um, you know, and you, you get intellectually lazy and you also say, well, I've got other things going on here. Now, my first job has to be to prevent an invasion of Afghanistan because, you know, I've been to Afghanistan and, and I knew perfectly well people there didn't want to be invaded again. And, you know, and I felt a certain duty. So I threw myself into that. And of course, you know, I wasn't successful, needless to say. All this had been planned in advance anyway. And then I thought, oh, my God, now they're going to attack Iraq. So I'll throw myself into trying to prevent that. Well, again, we didn't we didn't succeed there. That had been planned in advance, too. It was unstoppable. And it was really in the exhaustion that followed both of, of those failed anti-war movements that, um, that I sat down and finally decided around 2004, 2005 to look into the 9-11 attacks. And it wasn't until then that I really thought, oh, my God. You know, I've been going around thinking that Al-Qaeda did this and giving talks on it. and So it was, it was a, a real sober moment of learning for me. So what happened in 2004? Well, a couple of things. Uh, uh, in I think it was 2004. It may have even been 2003. Um, I went to Geneva for a meeting of a subgroup of the World Health Organization, WHO, because my group um, was involved in a big project, well, big for us anyway, called the Health of Children in War Zones. And we'd gotten a million and a half bucks or so to do this, and we were operating, operating in three war zones. We were trying to come up with strategies, how you could use a health initiative that is something that would improve the health of people, especially kids, and that could also at the same time function as a peace initiative. And uh, the UN, people in the UN took note of this because the WHO had had a project years ago called Health as a Bridge to Peace. So they invited me and they invited other people from all over the world and we met. And to my surprise, <laughs> to my surprise, I found that while in public, everybody, you know, pretended to be, uh, you know, horrified by Al-Qaeda and so on, that actually there were people from all over the world when you got them sitting around under a tree who thought that 9-11 was a fraud and, and that, you know, um, that it was done by people in the U.S. And, and I thought that was really interesting because none of them would say that publicly. But privately, that's what a lot of them thought. And it got me thinking that maybe this isn't just wacky um, brainstorming here. Mind you, I had never, I had never ridiculed people who said 9-11 was an inside job. I had just uh, taken note of their opinion and, and added it to my file. But in any case, this was, this, these were very thoughtful people, very experienced people. So it got me thinking a little more deeply. And then in 2005, I finally started to do some serious reading, you know. So I read Steve Jones and, and David Ray Griffin and, and all the, you know, Jim uh, Hoffman and all the people who were a little bit faster off the mark than I was. And, uh, and then I started doing my own research in primary sources. 
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Dr. Graham McQueen, a retired professor of Buddhist studies at, at, um, at McMaster University. Uh, he's also on the uh, 9-11 uh, Commission. And we're talking about, uh, we're just talking about, first of all, his, his story of, uh, of awakening uh, to 9-11. A couple of articles we're going to talk about. I want to get to the B-movie, but I want to talk first about this one you wrote in March called The Inside Job Hypothesis of the 9-11 Attack, JFK, uh, 9-11, and the American Left. And you use the word imagination there, and I remember uh, when I first read the 9-11 Commission report um, in which the Commission said that the problem with all of the defense systems was a lack of imagination, and I thought at the time it was kind of an odd choice of words, kind of an excuse. Uh, uh, they couldn't imagine terrorists being so crafty and evil, I guess. Is that, is that what the Commission meant? And, and it also has to do with kind of your story, as you just mentioned, right? Yeah, well, the... the um... The article that you're talking about, about the U.S. left, again, like most things I write, this came out of many years of stewing about this and thinking about it and debating it and arguing it. People saying to me, how can somebody as smart as Noam Chomsky not be on to the 9-11 thing? Yeah. And and I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've certainly met Noam Chomsky and always liked him, read his books, um, so for a while, I kind of defended him. I just said, you know, we can't all be on to everything, so give him a break. It's not his strength. And then it was pointed out to me that he wasn't on to the JFK thing either. He had actively opposed and, and kind of ridiculed people who thought it, it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. And now he was starting to do the same thing about 9-11, not just, you know, like if he had just said, you know what, I'm not interested in this stuff. So... I don't look into it, so don't ask me about it. I don't know anything about it. If he'd said that, it would have been fine. But instead, he and other um, members of the left in North America, prominent people, um, brush aside, dismiss, ridicule, and so on, those who question these things. And I got tired of it. I finally thought to myself, any social movement has the right to defend itself. And I'm not talking about violently, obviously. I'm talking about words. And so I said, it's time for me to do more than just kind of uh, keep giving excuses for people like Chomsky and Chris Hedges and Amy Goodman and, and um, Alexander Coburn and on and on and on. And so that's why I wrote that article. The original title um, in the, the place where I wrote it for was Beyond Their Wildest Dreams. Um, and it was saying that uh, I'm going to take a kind of – I'm going to approach the leadership of the left because I myself am on the left. I'm going to approach the left leadership in goodwill and I'm going to assume their good faith. I'm not going to go for, oh, well, they're frauds and they're agents and I'm not going to go there. I'm going to say, no, these are good people. They're doing their best. So how do I explain uh, their failure to understand this? And, and that's where I said, well, maybe it's their failure of imagination. It's not as if, you know, the, the Pentagon had a failure of imagination. As, as I've explained in my latest article, there was no failure of imagination there at all. They have a great the, imagination. They have a great about. imagination. Yeah, they, they don't have a problem. It's, it's us, if I might say so, and here I mean dissidents generally, whether on the left or elsewhere, who have had a major failure of imagination. And I myself had a failure of imagination for some years. And and thought, oh, no, surely they wouldn't do that, you know, because after all, all the things that Chomsky says, you know, if they were caught out, they could be executed. This would be a capital crime. Um, also, you know, sh surely it would be stupid for them and so on and so forth. So having had my own kind of failure of imagination, I then tried to apply that to them. And so that's the gist of that article. I'm saying I start off with JFK because it's a good example. I say the day after John Kennedy was assassinated, Fidel Castro gave a radio broadcast in Cuba. And it's quite, a, it's quite an astonishing little speech, actually. I mean, it's kind of disorganized and informal and spontaneous because he didn't have that much time to get it together. But he basically gives all the reasons why this certainly was not any lone individual, much less uh, some communist individual like the so-called Lee Harvey Oswald. He said, for one thing, we've never heard of this guy. He certainly wasn't involved in Cuban solidarity work. But he, said, he went through things one after the other, showing how stupid the official story was and how everything 
led to the conclusion that this was powerful elites in the US and possibly in other countries allied with the US and that they had every reason to want to get this uh, Kennedy out of the way because he wasn't right-wing enough and violent enough for them and he wasn't pursuing the Cold War the way they wanted him to and and he went through all these points very systematically it's really quite a brilliant talk and I thought so that's how I start off I say how is it that Fidel Castro got it right the day after the assassination and people like Noam Chomsky never got it right and are, you know, seem to be still thinking that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. So I said, well, it partly, uh, your imagination is important here. Uh, you, you can't prove anything through imagination, but the imagination is like this big space in which you can allow things. Uh, well, at least it was big in Fidel Castro's sense. He was able to look at various possibilities. And once you acknowledge them as possible, you can look and look at the evidence. You can, you can reason, you can argue, you can sort it out. But if you exclude it, if your imagination is narrow and restricted and you exclude these possibilities from the outside. Oh, no, it couldn't be that. Oh, no, they'd never do that. Oh, no, I don't believe that that. Then, of course, they'll never be there in front of you as real things that you're going to test through evidence and reason. And so you'll just never go there. So it seemed to me that even though we don't prove things true or false through the imagination, nonetheless, the imagination is crucial. If you don't, if you can't imagine something as possible, then you'll never, you'll never go there. You'll never see it, even if it's right in front of your face. So that's what that article is about. And I say in that article that there are lots of people on the left in Latin America who have no trouble imagining that U.S. elites would do that. Uh, but somehow U.S. elites, and here I left out my own country, but Canadian uh, uh, left leadership, sorry, that's what I meant instead of elites, left leadership are the same as the U.S. here. Uh, they have trouble picturing that their own governments could be involved in something that violent. Um, so they think of themselves as radicals and dissidents. They're not really willing to go there. And then I go on to say, and you don't have to be on the left to be able to imagine this. You know, um, Ahmed Inajad imagined it. Uh, the former prime minister of Malaysia imagined it. Um, the, huge numbers of people in the world had no trouble imagining it. And, and so I go through some of the polls. So the, the idea of that article is to say, you know, uh, those who think they're radical and, and dissident and all the rest of it ought to do a, a few exercises here to make their imagination a bit more flexible. Because right now you're filtering out things that are actually crucial to the operation of the modern state and to modern imperialism. You can talk about yourself as anti-imperialist, but if you don't know how it actually works in the 21st century, then you're missing something big. So that's the gist of that article. And uh, in a sense, it's uh, privilege that gets in our way. I mean, the difference between perhaps the uh, leadership of the left in North America uh, and, uh, and the people who actually are in Afghanistan who told you um, when you were do, first doing your peace studies before 9-11 that the United States was going to invade them and Castro's position. I mean, uh, there's a, right. a, pri a, a privilege in which we benefit by the state, uh, <laughs> even yeah. in its hor horrendous activities that blind yeah. us. Exactly. And, and what I try and say in that article is even though I think many of these people, most of these people who are in the left leadership are sincere and sincerely want to be on the side of the oppressed and the uh, imperialized, if you like, um, there is a tendency to, uh, to not really ascribe intellig critical intelligence to the oppressed and the poor, um, no matter how much you might think of yourself as on their side. And I think that's part of what's going on here because there are people all over the world who have no difficulty uh, imagining that this is done by the U.S. is, according to the polls, is probably uh, at least three quarters of a billion people in the world who think that this was done by this was an inside job. That's a lot of people. So it's not some little cult. 
Uh, I'm speaking with Graham McQueen on Progressive Spirit. Now, the article that you wrote, I want to move to this next one um, about um, the movie. Uh, the, the Pentagon, as we talked about, really does have a great imagination. And, and uh, your article, the 9-11, the Pentagon's B-movie, which was just uh, published uh, this, this early September of 2017, uh, was the result of really of, of years of imagining scenarios of various attacks. Uh, and, and we know this is all documented of, of how uh, planes going into buildings or whatever, chemical attacks. But right. what they did is the Pentagon framed a narrative to uh, deceive us. Uh, so tell me, how is 9-11 a movie? Well, I knew that the title would probably be controversial, title of this article, 9-11, uh, the Pentagon's B movie, because some people will see that and they'll get offended. What is he trying to say? It never really happened. Nobody really died. But I guess I take people seriously enough to think that if they're worried about that, they'll at least read the first two sentences. Um, and right away in the article, I say it was it was a real event and it was really, really violent. And it also had really, really violent outcomes for mm -hmm. the world, as David Griffin has recently detailed in his book. So so just to get that clear right from the outset. But then I go on and say, but although this was a, a really violent act, at the same time, it was filmic, as we say, like a film in some ways. It was a spectacle. It was scripted. It was meant to shock and awe. Now, I think people, when you think about it, you really have to admit that regardless of who you think did it. You might say, well, sure, it was scripted, and sure, it was filmic, and sure, it was shock and awe, but that's what terrorism is. It's it's often horrific public violence. So that's what that's what bin Laden did. He, he scripted it. Well, okay, um, we can we can at least agree with stage one here, that this, this was a scripted, enacted, produced, directed event, which was meant to have a profound... Uh, impact on people's minds. I'm speaking with Dr. Graham McQueen. We're discussing his two articles, 9-11, the Pentagon's B-movie, and the inside job hypothesis of the 9-11 attacks, JFK 9-11, and the American left. When we come back, we will continue that conversation and discuss his 2014 book, the 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. My guest is Dr. Graham McQueen. It was, a, it was a psychological operation, regardless of who you think did it. The psyche, the, the mind, the heart of people were, tar were the real targets. I mean, bodies were targets too, but even more were minds. And that's an important place to start. And then I go on from there to explore this issue of, of it being filming. So I say, did, did the U.S. government admit this? Did they acknowledge that it was in some ways like a movie? Yes, they did. Already in October 2001, right after the event, they had a gathering of uh, Hollywood screenwriters and so on who were going to meet with U.S. intelligence and, and brainstorm together. Um, because that was part of the failure of imagination hypothesis, that somehow, if only the U.S. Pentagon and the intelligence services had had the imagination that Hollywood has, see, they could have been prepared for this event, but unfortunately they didn't, so they had to go and learn from Hollywood. And then I go on to say, well, that's an interesting thought, but it's false, because despite the statements of George Bush and uh, Condoleezza Rice, these the attacks on buildings like this by hijackers with planes had been 
imagined and had been scripted and had been enacted in simulations and exercises over a period of years, as you just said. And, and I just quote, I don't know, 16 or so of those scenarios, but there were more than that. I had to cut it down because I didn't want to you know, go on and on. Um, but yeah, there were a whole bunch of scenarios, you know, a hijacked plane hits uh, the UN building or hits the Pentagon or hits in at least one case, the World Trade Center. They'd thought about all this. So there's nothing wrong with the Pentagon's imagination. And so then, of course, we have to face the fact that let's suppose bin Laden had a good imagination. He pictured this. Uh, Pentagon had a good good imagination. Gee, who could have actually enacted it more easily? Well, obviously, the Pentagon had the resources that bin Laden didn't have. Um, so they become suspects right away. And then we go on from there. And, and I have to say that one of the things that, that prompted me to write this article was that uh, over 10 years ago, I read the uh, World Trade Center Task Force reports. This is where the uh, members of the Fire Department of New York were interviewed. And there's about 12,000 pages of these interviews. And I'd read through them a couple of times, uh, maybe 11 years ago. And I mean, there's lots of important stuff in there. But one of the things that troubled me was the number of people. I think it's somewhere around 28 different references to this being like a movie. Because I thought, here are these people right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it, you know, seeing people dead, seeing body parts lying around the ground and getting caught in the debris cloud. And yet they're saying one after the other, gee, this looked like a movie. I couldn't get over how much this is like a movie. This is like a Godzilla movie. This is like the movie Armageddon. This is blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know, how, what do I do with this? Because I think they're actually saying more than just, you know, it was shocking and I had a sense of unreality. I mean, I could understand that. And they do say that sometimes. But they're doing more than that. They're saying this was unbelievable. They're saying I've never seen anything like this in all my years of emergency work in New York. They're saying buildings don't come down like this. They're saying I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And they're saying this, this reminds me of Hollywood movies. And so I thought, well, how do we put all this together? And so I finally decided, well, yeah, in a way, they were seeing a movie. Um, they were seeing a spectacle that had been scripted in order to affect people's psyches, to prepare them for war and for the loss of civil rights, to prepare them to hand over more power to the executive branch in the United States. And um, yeah, and, and then I go on to say, uh, we know this because careful studies of the very things that were impressing the firefighters, like the way the buildings were destroyed and like this debris cloud that they got engulfed by, these things could not have happened the way we're told they happened. Uh, in other words, this was not the result of a gravity collapse of buildings because some terrorists smashed planes of them. No, it doesn't work. The math has been done, okay? This has been shown. It couldn't have happened unless those buildings were blown up. As I point out in the article, in less than 20 seconds, you have a building 1,300 feet high, very robust building. Less In less than 20 seconds, it doesn't just come down. I mean, it's not like it falls down. It's turned into powder, and this powder then rushes at great speed in all directions through the streets of Manhattan from the Trade Center, engulfing people, and in some cases, throwing them into the air, if you can imagine the amount of force that is there. And they're inhaling the buildings. They're inhaling the World Trade Center. And of course, many of them will then die from all the crap they're inhaling. And um, this isn't smoke. This isn't quote-unquote dust. This is the Trade Center itself, which has been violently pulverized uh, and not by gravity. And I, I quote uh, um, an engineer who's done the, the math on this. It's gravity couldn't have done it, you know, and it has to have been explosives. So in other words, I'm, I'm saying here that um, there was a real event that happened, but the way it was staged and the way it was narrated to us, the way we were told that it happened is a movie. It's, it's not, that's not what really happened. Um, the movie is the story of the Islamic extremists who knocked down buildings with planes. That's the movie. 
Yeah. The reality, the reality is, you know, high-ranking people putting explosive explosives in buildings. Yeah, and that movie just goes by uh, a long-term script that's gone back in, in fiction narratives to uh, perhaps the beginning of fiction of the uh, the myth of redemptive violence, the uh, the evil outsider and and uh, attacking uh, the good ones, and we respond back. I mean, you know, the um, yes. there's another book that uh, it's slipping my mind right now, but you're talking about the. Uh, the FBI, the CIA have had a big influence in actual Hollywood in, in helping uh, Hollywood make these movies that are um, they're good for the defense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, another thing which I mentioned briefly, but it's important in the article, namely that there's been this collaboration between the national security state and Hollywood for a long time, and it, and it still is. So the idea that the national security state wouldn't know about these things, wouldn't have any imagination, uh, is absurd. And uh, it's, it's a really kind of diabolical um, alliance because our young people go to the movies and get all excited about uh, watching the, uh, the good guys, their own violent actors uh, responding against the bad guys, terrorists, and blowing them up and all the rest of it. And it's, um, well, it's it's very dangerous. It's very sad uh, for anybody who has a sense of uh, what the future of the planet uh, should be as opposed to what we're headed for now. So all of this stuff I write, these articles, the book about anthrax, they're meant to get people thinking about who is it that is steering the ship of state at the moment, especially in the U.S., but also in my own country and in the West generally. And can we trust them to, sheer, to steer the ship of state into this perilous future that we have when everything from nuclear holocaust to ecological holocaust is possible? And I, I'm trying to get people to see, you know, we, we need to get these people out of power before we can work for a humane future. Let's go back to your book, your 2014 book about uh, anthrax. I, I, I had actually forgotten, really, about the yeah. anthrax letters and certainly didn't understand its importance on uh, influencing the global war on terror until after I finished your book. So uh, can you give us a, a synopsis here of, uh, of, of that book? Shortly after, very shortly after the 9-11 attacks, letters were put in the mail, about a week after, actually, they started to be put in the mail, containing uh, spores, lethal spores of anthrax. And uh, if you breathe this stuff in, if you get it in your lungs, then you can develop pulmonary uh, or inhalation anthrax, which is extremely deadly. Typically, we hear that about 90% or more of the people who contract inhalation anthrax die. So they were put in the mail and they were sent to various places, initially to news agencies, and then a little bit later, a more deadly form of uh, anthrax spores was sent to two U.S. senators. And it, it's kind of weird that people forget this, uh, although I understand why they do. I pretty much forgot it too before I decided to look into it. Because we keep hearing about this country or that country might you know, do a WMD attack on the United States. Well, actually, in 2001, there was an attack on the U.S. Congress with a weapon of mass destruction. So let's just stop there. That's a big deal. How can people forget that? Because weaponized anthrax is a biological weapon, and it is a weapon of mass destruction. And it was sent to two Democratic senators who just happen to have been holding up the passage of the Patriot Act at that moment, um, Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle. And I mean, talk about fishy, right? And not only that, but initially we have these uh, letters, sorry, the envelopes full of, with the spores in them accompanied by written letters, uh, handwritten letters printed that crudely say things like, uh, you know, we have this anthrax, you die now. <laughs> um, Allah is great, um, death to Israel, death to America, that kind of thing. Uh, in other words, and they even have the date 9-11 at the top. So in other words, whoever 
sent these things with the anthrax was trying to say, hello, here we are, we're Islamic extremists, we're the same people who attacked you uh, just a short while ago on 9-11, and here we are again with a biological weapon. Uh, the only problem is um, that story didn't didn't succeed very well at all. By the Within a few months, by the end of 2001, it had been shown that the anthrax uh, in those letters did not come from Iraq or Al-Qaeda. It came from within a U.S. military laboratory. Um, that is a lab, one of several labs that served the U.S. military and or the CIA. There's only three labs, really, that are major suspects. And um, so then, of course, the FBI had to get to work and do damage control and convince everybody that, oh, well, this wasn't really very significant in the end. There was just a few people that died, you know, like five or something, and maybe another uh, 17 or whatever that got sick. It's not a big deal. And, and, and you know what? It was probably done by a lone nut. So we're going to look now. We're going to find the lone nut. And they eventually claim they found him, Bruce Ivins. He conveniently dies before he can be brought to trial. And and then we're all supposed to forget about it. So that's that's why it's not a coincidence that you forgot about it. We're all supposed to forget about it. It swept down the mem memory hole. But as I try and say in this book, it's really, really important to look at the anthrax attacks because there's all sorts of evidence that they were done by the same people that did the 9-11 attacks. And I think actually studying the anthrax attacks is a very good way into the broader uh, operation because it was a two-part operation in 2001. Um, first, the airplane attacks that we call 9-11, and secondly, the biological weapons attacks, which started a week later. It's all the same people. It's all the same operation. And you can, you can really get a, a good entry into that operation by studying the anthrax attacks. So that'll have to do as my little summary. Now, um, and, and there's a connection that you wrote in that book between uh, the anthrax attacks and, and the hijackers, which was fascinating right. in Florida. And, and that was all new to me, too. And, and so right. can talk a little bit about, uh, about that, the hijackers and, and their right. role, as you might say, looking at the movie. Uh, aspect of of the narration created by uh, whoever it was. Um, what what uh, what was their role in all of this? Well, I'm glad you used the word movie again because uh, it was probably while writing the Anthrax book that I first started to realize that there's a whole range of imaginative and creative scenarios that these people are using. Um, they're getting basically people to be actors and to pretend to be terrorists, for example, and to run around the country making themselves visible and making themselves look dangerous. And 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 so that, that was very useful for me to, to see that. Okay, well, when I started, um, when I decided to study the anthrax attacks, I'd already been studying the 9-11 attacks for some years, and I'd written, I think, four articles or something about 9-11. And I thought, you know, there are some people who are saying that that, that anthrax came from military <laughs> labs in the U.S. I mean, hello, if that's true, that's really important. I'm going to look into that. So I find, yes, it's true. But what I also found, to my surprise, was, as you say, that some of the famous 19 hijackers who supposedly did 9-11, were also involved in these anthrax attacks. Now, just stop a minute and think about that. I mean, okay, so the anthrax attacks were frauds. Everybody knows that. Even the FBI admits that somebody did that who was an insider in the U.S. military-industrial complex and pretended to be extremists, extremist Muslim, pretended to be al-Qaeda. So even the FBI admits that, right? Um, but wait a minute, if the 19 hijackers, or some of them at least, are involved in this anthrax attacks, and the anthrax attacks are fakes, the only conclusion is that 9-11 is a fake too. And I think the FBI and various other agencies are quite um, determined that we not see this rather obvious connection. When I began to see the footprints of the hijackers involved in the anthrax attacks, that I decided I really had to write this up. So I originally wrote it as an article. 
And uh, then I was encouraged to expand it into a small book. So that's what I did. So yeah, we we know that uh, the for example the so-called leader of the hijackers, Muhammad Atta, um, was going around trying to rent a little plane and modify it. A crop duster plane is what he had in mind. Um, and he was even trying to get a U.S. government loan to do this. And everything about it indicated that he was going to use it to spray a biological or chemical weapon in the U.S. He wasn't the only one. There were other so-called Al-Qaeda people with him that went out to crop duster locations and started making themselves obnoxious. How far will this plane go? Uh, how, how many gallons does it take? Uh, do you have to refuel it once you start up? All this stuff. This, these scenarios were cooked up and they went on for months. And what they were obviously meant to do was to implant in the minds of people that there's a group of Al-Qaeda guys who are going around trying to find a way to deliver a biological or chemical weapon against the United States. And um, they're also hijacker. There's a case of the hijacker who has irritated hands, and we're told that's because he was involved in preparing anthrax. We're, we have a guy with a black lesion on his leg, one of the 19 hijackers, and that's diagnosed as probably cutaneous anthrax. He got that from preparing anthrax. So that there's a whole list of, of things that tie, you know, we also have the fact that the very place where these 19 hijackers were hanging around in Florida is where the first victim dies of anthrax. Um, and, you know, you have to read the book to see all the detailed connections, but it's, it's quite clear that they were involved in setting up. Let's, let's put it this way. These guys were actors, essentially, and they were involved in setting up scenarios which were supposed to convince us after the fact that they had been involved in both the airplane attacks and the anthrax attacks. And and it's uh, part of this idea, this two-pronged thing, because you had to have Iraq and al-Qaeda uh, right. somehow connected with this, that Iraq right. was the state that was able to do this. And then that, that kind of didn't work out or it worked out just enough to pass the Patriot Act, and then it was dropped and right. changed. Yes, that's another point in the book that they certainly didn't just want to frame um, Afghanistan. They had an invasion of Iraq in mind from the outset, clearly. And so the attempt was made very quickly to, I call it the double perpetrator hypothesis, and now we're talking about the anthrax attacks. The double perpetrator hypothesis, which was being pushed, for example, in October 2001, was that there were some of these crude Al-Qaeda guys who were kind of the foot soldiers. So they're the ones who write this stupid, illiterate letter in which they misspell uh, penicillin and, you know, you die now, that kind of stuff. So that's Al-Qaeda. They're the foot soldiers. They, they send the letters with the anthrax pores. But they wouldn't have had the sophistication or the resources or anything to allow them to produce some of the extremely sophisticated weaponized anthrax in the envelopes. So there they had to have a backer. They had to have a supply. Who was that? Well, that's where we're told, oh, that was Iraq. Iraq was behind this. And there's a whole separate initiative made to convince us that the anthrax spores were weaponized in a specifically Iraqi way. You know, they had bentonite added to the spores to make them into a more effective aerosol. And of course, it all turned out to be false. It was all BS. <laughs> But this was the story that was pushed. So the attempt was made to set up both Afghanistan and Iraq. And the uh, the anthrax attacks were very important for that because they hadn't been able to set up Iraq very well after 9-11, even though some attempts had been made. But the anthrax, they thought this this will really this will really be easy because we know uh, Iraq was trying to make anthrax at one point. And uh, so we'll be able to convince the world that they're the ones who did this. Uh, so, yeah, I'm convinced that was the effort. That was the narrative. But it, but it failed. 
and um, how it failed, why it failed is kind of complex. You'd have to read the book, but it failed and it failed quite rapidly. And that's why, um, even though the anthrax attacks were important in uh, reinforcing people's fear and the sense that Islamic extremists are out there, um, perhaps the most important accomplishment of the anthrax attacks in retrospect was in getting the Patriot Act by because uh, they really were very important in getting that through. So you have to see that people in the U.S. were being terrorized very systematically. They had a psychological operation um, carried out against them in the fall of 2001. And it had these two phases. First hit them with the airplanes, and then when they start to recover uh, from that, you hit them with anthrax. You, you tell them basically anybody could open their mail in the morning and die from this stuff. It's a pervasive threat. And, and so we'll get people to be angry at external enemies and to support war. And at the same time, we'll get them to give up some of their civil rights, which of course happened in the Patriot Act. Pretty well planned, you know. I don't think there's anything very spontaneous about this. So that's why you, you can talk about it as scripted. And when you see these guys going around, you know, visiting um, crop duster locations and, and then going in and asking for a government loan so that they can build a, a, a better crop duster plane and all this, these are... These are, I don't know what to call them, except simulations or little dramatic episodes or scripted scenarios. Yeah, that, that scene was just comical. I didn't, you know, when the re, yeah. uh, the person he goes to get a loan for and he says he's going to cut her throat. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> yeah. it really was a B movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's comical. Whenever I tell, whenever I give that one in public, people are killing themselves. Yeah. Uh, the, the, fi the fact that we're supposed to believe this, you know. Um, but, you know, there you have it. Graham McQueen has been my guest. Check out a couple of articles on Global Research. 9-11, uh, the Pentagon's B-movie, is most recent. Uh, also, the inside job hypothesis of the 9-11 attacks, JFK, 9-11, and the American left. Uh, the 2001 Anthrax Deception, a case for domestic conspiracy, was his book in 2014. And he's a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. And... Uh, one, 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 I guess let me ask one, one final question. Where, where do you see the hope of the 9-11 Truth Movement? Yeah, we're, we're at a knife-edge moment right now. Um, we could either dissipate and go nowhere, or we could be entering into our most powerful phase. Um, the Architects and Engineers is a very vital group. They're kind of leading the way right now. I think we need to support them. Graham McQueen, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your work. Appreciate you being with me today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressivespirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schott. Be well.